Um, it's important to keep in the back of our minds that censorship is the name of the game for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, one of the key features of the CCP's means of control is to control thought and obviously to control speech and the expression of thought. Because the idea is that if you can control thought, then you can control action. And if you can control action, then you can control outcome. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Gina Lim, and I'm joined by my co-host, Indy Afrink. China's long history of censorship and strict control over its citizens has garnered both domestic and international attention. The most recent case of the disappearance of the female tennis player Pang Shuai stoked outrage amongst many, including the International Olympic Committee and the Association of Tennis Professionals. Although Pang is suspected to be under watch but physically safe, it brings into question the future of Chinese censorship on a global platform. With the Beijing Winter Olympics set to start on February 4th, we ask, how ingrained is political censorship in China? Will international factors and perspectives impact Chinese censorship? Is international outrage over Pang pushing Beijing to change? To answer these questions, Joining us today on the podcast is Olivia Enos. Olivia Enos is a senior policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation and focuses on human rights and national security challenges in Asia. Her research spans a wide range of subjects, including democracy and governance challenges, human trafficking and human smuggling, religious freedom, refugee issues, and other social challenges in the region. She has a bi-monthly column in Forbes where she writes on the intersection between human rights challenges and national security concerns. And in 2014, she co-founded the Council on Asian Affairs, a group for young Asia policy professionals in Washington, D.C. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Olivia, thank you for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast of Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So before we talk about Peng Shuai, can you give us an overview of how political censorship has played out in China under Xi Jinping? and how it yeah. compares to past administrations. Absolutely. So I think we've really seen um, a tightening of political speech and just a tightening on speech in general under Xi Jinping. And, um, you know, not only is this evidenced by some of the historical ways in which the Chinese Communist Party has sought um, to really undermine speech the Great Firewall, of course, comes to mind in the internet context. Um, but we've also really seen how the CCP has ramped up a lot of its digital efforts to tackle free speech. Um, so we see this um, in the stated goals of the CCP, saying that they want to meld the digital world with the physical world. Um, they don't really want there to be a difference because they recognize that especially the activities of Chinese citizens online can be easily controlled and manipulated in some ways much more easily than just being out and about in China. Um, and I think one way that they have been able to even tamp down on this further is through a lot of their surveillance efforts. And we've seen the ways in which the CCP has used surveillance, particularly against its weaker population, not only to monitor their activities, um, but also in the ways that they've applied it to collectivize Uyghurs. We know that today there's between 1.8 million and 3 million Uyghurs currently held inside political um, re-education facilities. And that was no mistake. 
it was in no small part aided and abetted by the massive surveillance and the police state that exists to monitor and to even identify somebody exiting out their back door as a suspicious enough activity to be called into a police station. So we just see so many ways in which the CCP is targeting speech, targeting movement, targeting expression. And we've seen that truly heighten over the last five years or more under Xi Jinping. Right. And so we've seen, as you said, a lot of this technological surveillance and censorship carried out by the CCP on a day-to-day basis on um, on its citizens and especially targeted in the weaker population, as you've said. Um, but to specifically focus on um, a case of pretty high profile censorship that's been covered in the news a lot recently and in December, um, let's talk about Peng Shui. So can you explain a little bit who she is and what happened to make her be censored by the CCP? Yeah, so uh, Peng Shuai is a really well-known Chinese tennis player. She is actually a three-time Olympian and um, was a uh, tennis doubles champion, I think, on on many occasions. Um, So very high profile in the tennis community. And earlier this year, she took to Weibo, which is the equivalent of, um, in the U.S., Twitter, but is much more heavily censored. Um, And as we talked about, um, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party monitors the Chinese citizen social media activity very closely. Well, when she took to Weibo, she actually accused the um, former vice premier of China, Zhang Gaoli, of sexually assaulting her. Um, and I, I believe even suggested that she was raped by him. It was a lengthy um, you know, uh, a lengthy statement that she made uh, um, making these allegations. Um, and within, um, you know, a very short period of time, that article was removed and um, Peng Shui was disappeared for two weeks. The international community did not know where she was. And we started to see um, trending on Twitter, trending on the news all over the globe, people saying, where is Peng Shui? Um, and so you just had a whole lot of different events unfold. Um, I think the real, you know, the really bad actors here, of course, are the Chinese Communist Party who forcibly disappeared her. But when she was reappeared, um, she was essentially forced to have conversations with the International Olympic Committee's president, Thomas Bach. Um, and this was supposed to be the, you know, quote unquote, proof of life, proof that she was um, not being targeted by the CCP. But we know that this is very typical um, hostage behavior to parade a hostage in front of the international community to force them to recant previous things that they had said and to make it look like all things are normal when, of course, we know that all things are not normal. And I did just want to add here really quickly, and I I should have said this in the first point, but um, it's important to keep in the back of our minds that censorship is the name of the game for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, One of the key features of the CCP's means of control is to control thought and obviously to control speech and the expression of thought. Because the idea is that if you can control thought, then you can control action. And if you can control action, then you can control outcome. And I think, unfortunately, what we saw was the CCP carrying out this type of model against a very high profile person who, um, you know, apart from the attention of the international or apart from the attention of the international community, 
um, we might not have ever confirmed her whereabouts because so many people uh, fall prey to the CCP's targeting and they're disappeared permanently. Um, so I'm just curious as of now um, what Peng's situation is, if we, if we know for sure from an international standpoint, um, what's going on with her right now? Yeah, so um, we have seen her show up every once in a while. Um, there have been, you know, just occasional surfacing of her, sightings of her. Some have said that these are legitimate sightings. Some have said that these are pictures that were taken in years prior and then doctored to reflect um, her now. There's now rumors that um, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC's uh, president, Thomas Bach, will meet with her yet again. Um, and this would be in the lead up to the Olympics, which are taking place uh, in the next several weeks in Beijing. And I, I just want to underscore a point here. Um, China should never, never have been selected to host uh, the 2022 Winter Olympic Games. Um, and the Peng Shui situation is just another nail in the coffin for why they shouldn't have been selected. Um, but the fact that they've been selected at all and that the, the president of the International Olympic Committee is planning to make a spectacle of Peng Shui, who is effectually a political prisoner of sorts, you know, under at least close watch, if not actual house arrest, um, the fact that they would make a spectacle of her in order to try and just pave the way for a quote unquote uneventful um, Olympics is absolutely shameful and it should be condemned in the strongest of terms. I'm interested to hear more about how Pung's disappearance will have a lasting impact on um, perhaps the the CCP's behavior in the 2022 Olympics, if that even is a factor in their behavior, perhaps how it may how her disappearance may factor into international behavior um, at the Olympics. I know the U.S. is already planning on carrying out a diplomatic boycott, but does Pong's disappearance will that be a final push for some countries, or for will Pong's disappearance have a lasting impact on the 2022 Olympics, or in the way that? Um, the CCP acts in the future, I guess is my question. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think that um, Peng's disappearance will have an impact and arguably already has had an impact on, at the very least, the sporting industry. Um, number one, after the the news about Peng Shui came out from the start, um, the Women's Tennis Association took an incredibly strong stance. They condemned what was happening they didn't just ask for proof of life um, of Pong and proof of her safety, but they also asked for a credible investigation into the sexual assault allegations that she was making that have been largely ignored by the International Olympic Committee and largely ignored by the CCP itself. And I think that the WTA's outspokenness, um, and Steve Simon, who's the president of the WTA's outspokenness, serves as a model for how, um, how important actors in the sports industry should be speaking out and condemning China's actions. And the WTA actually said, we are no longer going to be engaging in games um, 
in China, we're willing to lose the profits that we can get from the Chinese market because the way that they treated an esteemed tennis player was completely unacceptable. The way they treated their own citizen is completely unacceptable. And so I hope that it has a positive impact on how the sports industry thinks about um, the role that they can play in addressing the Chinese Communist Party's abuses. And I think this serves as a really positive, um, hopefully, you know, sort of a foreshadowing of how some might act at the Olympics. Um, maybe some athletes will be inspired to speak out and to stand in solidarity with the suffering Chinese people. Um, and so I think that it is quite possible that there will be um, an impact. I think, though, uh, that the WTA's actions also stand in sharp contrast to the International Olympic Committee's own handling of the issue. And my hope is that the mishandling by the IOC will lead those in the international community who stand on the side of rights, who stand on the side of freedom, to seek to hold the International Olympic Committee accountable for the way in which they aided and abetted the Chinese Communist Party, not just in the Peng Shui case, but also in selecting Beijing to host the Olympics in the first place. Now that we have covered essentially who Peng Shui is and a spotlight she brings onto China's actions. I just want to hear more about to what extent is Peng's story emblematic of a greater trend of censorship in China? So thinking back to Jack Ma's experience after he spoke out against like the Chinese financial systems and other high profile disappearances. And what do you think of that becoming or is it becoming a more common political tool of the Chinese government? Yeah, well, you know, I'm so glad that you're asking that question because the Chinese Communist Party has such a long track record of censorship and of sidelining political opposition. You, of course, mentioned the case of Jack Ma, um, but beyond Jack Ma in you know recent years, you have Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong, all of the Hong Kong dissidents who are a part of the pro-democracy movement, um, you know, folks um, like Agnes Chow and Joshua Wong um, and uh, Ivan Lam, who all are serving prison terms um, simply for speaking and standing on the side of freedom. And even beyond Hong Kong, um, of course, you have uh, Chinese Christian pastors like Wang Yi, who were, you know, leaders of churches who were sentenced to nine years in prison um, simply for preaching the gospel. Um, or even beyond this, and, and I think, you know, arguably most poignantly, today there's between 1.8 million and 3 million Uyghurs inside political re-education facilities. When the Chinese Communist Party does not want political opposition, does not want alternative viewpoints to be aired, then the Chinese Communist Party targets those individuals, silences them, and oftentimes it's not just livelihoods that are put into question, it's actual lives that are sacrificed. Um, I think for me, Lu Xiaobo uh, um, comes to mind um, as you know, uh, among those who have given their lives in China, but speaking the truth in China can cost you your life. Um, and so I think that it's so important to highlight that while it does not always cost somebody their life, speaking out in China 
always has consequences of varying degrees. And so, yes, I think this is why the U.S. government um, and other freedom-loving governments around the world need to respond with strength um, to the Chinese Communist Party and the threat that they pose to liberty all across the globe. Then do you think these series of censorships and series of like political disappearances, as you mentioned, how do you think they fit into Xi Jinping's larger political agenda? Or do you think there is a specific agenda he's pushing for right in this movement? Yeah, um, the Chinese Communist Party, um, I would say, has two primary foreign policy goals. One is to maintain internal stability, and the other is to safeguard sovereignty. Um, Both of these priorities at root tie back to the Chinese Communist Party's centrality and to their strength. I think the primary goal of Xi Jinping is to ensure the strength and the longevity of the party And so when there are voices of opposition or when situations arise like what we saw in Hong Kong, where people were simply taking to the streets to defend their liberty, they were hoping for universal suffrage, Um, they were hoping to maintain the one country, two systems framework that had made Hong Kong so prosperous and such a wonderful place to live for so many years. But when they saw millions of people taking to the streets and protesting, the Chinese Communist Party saw it as a threat to internal stability and had to shut it down. When they look to the Uyghurs, they say, ah, the Uyghurs, um, you know, they're a Muslim minority group. They're, they um, have perhaps an allegiance that is other than the party, um, you know, not unlike Christians or Catholics, Falun Gong, Tibetan Buddhists, any person who is religious, um, you know, sees that there is a higher authority and grants their allegiance to that. And they want the CCP to be central. And so religious practice is only permitted insofar as um, it it doesn't threaten the party's power. Um, And, you know, with the Uyghurs, you've seen an extreme case of this, but it's a logical result from seeing what they perceive as a threat to the party and seeking to eliminate it in its entirety. And people always talk about the camps, which I think is, you know, obviously incredibly important and rightfully so. But many people miss the fact that, one, there's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity going on there, and that the root of that case for ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity is not solely and exclusively the existence of these camps, but the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has a stated goal of forcibly sterilizing between 80 to 90 percent of Uyghur women of childbearing age. That's a stated goal in Chinese uh, Communist Party documents. And if you succeed in that, it means that you have essentially no, uh, you know, a significantly smaller, if not ultimately non-existent next generation of Uyghurs. So I think when the Chinese Communist Party says they want internal stability and they want to safeguard sovereignty and they target groups in these ways that they see as threatening to both of those objectives, you just realize the great lengths the CCP will go to in order to achieve those those goals. Um, and so, yes, I do think it is part of a a plan and a system. Sometimes I think it can look a little bit ad hoc, 
um, but the centralization of the CCP makes it much easier and much swifter to be able to take it out or significantly manipulate whole people groups, uh, which is quite horrifying. And yet again, another reason why the CCP should not, or why Beijing should not have been selected to host the Olympics. So in the face of day-to-day censorship, um, in terms of technology, social media, other forms of tracking, what are methods that citizens just in general in China used to elude day-to-day censorship and are they effective? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people use a VPN to get around the Great Firewall, um, which, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, the firewall essentially limits um, what an ordinary Chinese citizen can see on the web. So it's almost more like an intra-web that's controlled and monitored by the CCP. um, And it's a really, really... Um, very technologically advanced form of censorship. Um, But a lot of people will use a VPN in order to get around it. Um, I think that there are also other external efforts that have been done to improve information access in hard to reach places, not just in China, but in places like North Korea or Iran that are US government funded that seek to provide information to people who are wanting to get it. you know, Chinese, ordinary Chinese people also use Weibo, but of course that is closely monitored um, if they have any sort of political speech that is out there. I think what's very sad for me is that I think the average Chinese citizen, um, you know, apart from traveling outside of China, generally won't have access to the web. And so they, uh, the full web in the way that we do, the free and open, <laughs> um, you know, internet, if you will. They don't have access to that. And so it is very unfortunate um, that, you know, they have such a limited aperture solely because the government has decided that the citizens do not have a right um, to free and accessible information. I think some of that is in no small part done to protect the party and the party's strength. So kind of moving going Back to we've talked a little about the Olympics already and how Peng's case relates to China's issues and maybe actions relating to the Olympics. But now I would like love to hear more about how this international scrutiny, whether it be from the IOC, from US directly, from international from international news sources, how that plays into how the current administration handles censorship. Well, you know, I, I don't know that it actually affects um, the way that the Chinese Communist Party handles censorship, censorship, other than to try and strengthen um, and tamp down on any loopholes that citizens might develop in order to try and access the internet. But I think that, nevertheless, international pressure on China is incredibly important, if for no other reason that those who are able to break through the firewall, those who are are able to gain access to information, might realize that the Chinese Communist Party's decision not to respect and uphold their rights is not a vision that is shared by those around the globe who care for freedom and care for liberty. And so I think that there's a really important role to play. And I think, as you said, Gina, the Olympics present a really interesting opportunity for not only governments to stand in solidarity with the suffering Chinese people and to hold Beijing accountable, um, but also for um, the the business community, um, whether that's internationally or uh, multinational companies, as well as civil society has a really critical role to play to shed light on what the CCP is doing and the ways in which it is abusing and exploiting its own people. Um, I've personally been encouraged to see 
um, increased efforts to sanction individuals within the CCP. Some of these have been done unilaterally through the U.S., both under the Trump administration, under the Biden administration, but also multilaterally as well with sanctions um, early last year from the European Union, Canada, the United Kingdom, and otherwise targeting key individuals like Cheng Guo, who are responsible for the ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity being committed uh, against Uyghurs. Um, but I think the business community during the Olympics in particular has a opportunity. Um, one, I mean, they can call out the CCP for Peng Shui, but also for Hong Kong, for the what's happening against the Uyghurs, for persecution of religious minorities, um, for the ways in which China lied to the international community in the early days of the pandemic about the infectiousness of the disease. There are just many different lines of effort that can be used. And I think that every single day, um, businesses through their advertising or journalists and other civil society actors like think tanks, like um, students, like yourselves, um, there shouldn't be a single day that goes by during the Olympics that the CCP doesn't have all of the horrors that they're committing thrown in their face um, through international media coverage, through condemnation from the business community and from leaders around the globe. So just on a last note here, looking ahead, um, do you think that there is a situation or scenario in which China changes or decreases its censorship practices that it's currently you know, practicing in full force right now? Like, for example, is the possibility of acute domestic unrest in response to censorship something the CCP needs to worry about, something it is worrying about, um, just something it's thinking about for the future? Well, I think the CCP is definitely worried about unrest and does seek to tamp down on unrest in any way that it can. And of course, as you mentioned, Indy, um, that does, uh, you know, often result in further censorship um, a lot of times. And it's it's unfortunate that the communist system really does work like that. They seek to just quell any sort of dissent or opposing viewpoints. And I think that's really sad to see that happening. I think when you have a system um, that continues to perpetuate further censorship, further reduction in freedom of speech and freedom of expression, um, I think that governments around the world have to consider other options for offering relief and assistance to those who are in need. So for example, at Heritage, I've advocated for us extending priority to refugee status to Uyghurs and to Hong Kongers who are among the most persecuted in China, because when a government fails to respect the fundamental rights of its citizens, then I think that the U.S. and other nations um, that care about the plight of the Chinese people can step up in a practical and tangible way by offering refugee relief and by resettling them within our own borders. And so I still have hope because I think that there are policymakers who are thinking through options like the one I just mentioned um, in order to extend opportunities to, um, you know, entrepreneurial um, Chinese citizens and, and to individuals who are who are hungering and craving for freedom. And so I think we can help them in that way, even if we um, might not see a fundamental transformation in the Chinese system itself. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And it was great having this wonderful discussion with you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.